Well, if you have a, a Bible, would you open up to John chapter six? Uh, John chapter six uh, might be the most controversial chapter in the book of John, maybe even in all of the gospels amongst Christians. And so this Sunday and next Sunday, we're gonna deal with two really specific themes that come out of this chapter. And uh, next week, I'm gonna give you a little foretaste. We're gonna be going after uh, this concept where Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And actually, this singular verse has spawned all these different ideas about communion, the Eucharist, salvation, Catholicism, Lutheranism, the Greek Orthodox Church. And we're going we're gonna to dig into that one next week. Um, this week is actually even more controversial. There have been more debates and fights in Christendom about this subject than probably any other subject. And I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. But if I go down, Pastor Steve, my notes are right here. And you're going to pick up. Ready? All right. As long as you agree with me. I'm kidding. That's good. So in order to understand John 6, what I want to do with you is I want to explore the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this becomes very, very important if we're going to understand and interpret Jesus accurately. So to be a Pharisee or to be a Sadducee, I want you to think about it more like how we would, as Americans, process Republicans and Democrats. Uh, they really are two ways of seeing politics, theology, authoritative documents, etc. And you might be, for example, a priest or a scribe or a businessman or a layperson, and you're going to identify and agree with one of these two ideologies if you're a Jew in the first century. Something important for you to know about this whole concept of Pharisees and Sadducees or political systems amongst the Jewish people is that by the first century when the New Testament is written, by the time Jesus is really uh, active in his ministry, um, they've only been around for about 160 or 180 years. So if you go all the way back to Moses or Joshua or David, you're not going to find Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, this is an evolution of ideas and it really came to fruition roughly uh, probably 150 years or so um, before Jesus was even born. And so it's very similar, if you will, principally to even our political system. Uh, now, if you're going to talk about a Pharisee, um, this was also a group of people. So like you all might align uh, Republican or Democrat or Independent or something else, but there actually is an official group of people um, and there is an organization of Republicans and Democrats and Independents, et cetera, right? Um, and so you might actually be a part of the organization and there was an official group of people called Pharisees. Um, different times and there seemed to be upwards of thousands of people who were part of the group called Pharisees. Now, um, they were typically businessmen. They were typically businessmen who had done well enough that they had the privilege to go back to school and to study Jewish law. So in America, if you're going to be a judge or a lawyer, you have to study constitutional law. For them, their functional constitution was the, was the Old Testament, particularly with special emphasis in the first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees were legal scholars, and they were often normal businessmen. The Sadducees were a little bit different. They were the aristocrats, 
they were wealthy. They um, ran with the political elites. They were very influential. They, Rome and the Sadducees were buddies. Um, the masses, the common people, didn't look to the Sadducees with a lot of admiration. They looked to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were seen as like the, the political group of the people. Uh, whereas the Sadducees were the, were the political party of the elites, and they had an incredible, incredible amount of power. But what we really have to distinguish is the difference between what the two groups believed, and it is enormous. And if you have never studied this, this is going to come as a surprise to you. Let's, let's start off. The Pharisees, they believed in the entire Old Testament. So what you have in your Bible is this entire Old Testament. Um, they believed that all of them were scripture, authoritative, and from God. Um, if you were to ask any Jew, they would say special authority would have been like the foundation, would have been the, ten, would have been the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but they believed all of it. The Sadducees only affirmed and believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So the the Pharisees are developing their theology, not just from those first five books, but from the rest of the Old Testament. And the rest of the Old Testament has a lot to say about a lot of things that the Torah doesn't touch. let's, Let's unpack this more. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees did not believe angels and demons existed. They saw it more as mythology. In fact, if you unpack their understanding of the spiritual realm, they did not believe in a spiritual realm. They believed that the world was physical. Now, this brings us to the next notion of the Pharisees believed in the doctrines of heaven and hell, that when you die, your body has a soul, and this soul goes to one of two places. The Sadducees did not believe in heaven or hell. They did not believe in an afterlife. If you were a Sadducee, you you know the old joke, I make it all the time, but in case you've never heard it, they were sad, you see, because when they died, they believed that was it. There was nothing eternal except for God. And even sometimes their notion of God is a little more elusive. Uh, The Pharisees believed in the coming Messiah. It would be orchestrated by God for the salvation of Israel. And and, and the Sadducees didn't really pay much attention to that notion. They they did probably have an expectation that God might raise up some sort of messianic figure. But this idea that the Messiah was going to um, rule over all of the world forever and ever and people would be resurrected from the dead, they just didn't buy the whole notion of the typical Jewish Messiah. And we keep going here. The Pharisees believed in the sovereignty of God over all things. Like there was nothing, if you were a Pharisee, you would never ever look at something that happened and not see the hand of God actively in it. They believed in God's sovereignty. They believed in predestination. They believed in election. They believed in, like, they believed in these really big ideas about God's control over every aspect of the world. The, Fer- the Sadducees, they did not. They had an incredibly strong emphasis on human free will, that it is my decisions that determine my future. God doesn't have like probably a grand plan for my life in the way that the Pharisees thought it. They would see things as much more happenstance or accident or something of the sort. And then finally, the Pharisees believed in predestination. And the Sadducees did not. It's interesting because as you start to hear the beliefs of the Sadducees, like one of the things that you might be tempted to think is like, well, what do you believe at all, right? If you don't believe in a heaven or a hell or angels or demons or a spiritual realm, et cetera, and, and, and really that's a great point. We did a sermon not too long ago on cultural Christianity. 
And, and the Sadducees really represent cultural Judaism. They didn't stand for much. They stood for power, control, and money. And typically, they used the Torah, the law, to wield that power, control, and money. But if we're being honest, even though I might like the doctrine of the Pharisees a little bit better, in their heart, they weren't any better. You can have really good theology and be a, a jerk. You can be wrong. You can be manipulative. I had a bunch of different words, and I'm thinking, are they the right words? But there you go. You don't want to be that person. Now, I have to establish, as you look at this, I need you to know something about Jesus. And it's very important. Because when you read John 6, if you don't understand this, you might read John 6 as an American or as a Westerner. And you may not understand Jesus' simple theology. Jesus was a Pharisee theologically. Not politically, theologically. And when you understand Pharisaical doctrine, Jesus' really off-the-wall comments actually can begin to make sense. So I want to show you this, Matthew chapter 23. Uh, here's verses 1 through 3. It says, Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. Notice he didn't emphasize the Sadducees here. So do and observe what they tell you. They're really smart people. They get doctrine right. They understand how to interpret and often apply the law. But then he says this but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they don't practice. And so now, if you're Jesus, here's what he does regularly. When you look at all of his teaching, he's just aligning with the Pharisees over and over again. He's aligning with them theologically, but not politically, because politically they're corrupt, but theologically they're accurate. Now, unfortunately, he also has to come in and say, even though pharisaically I agree with your foundations, Pharisees, you've added a bunch of junk that is not in the text, and so he has to spend an incredible amount of time undoing the superfluous extra stuff that the Pharisees added. But at the core, when you just lay it out, Jesus is a Pharisee, theologically, not politically. So now we go back to John chapter 6. And here's what Jesus is doing. He is picking a fight with the Pharisees. In almost every chapter in John, when the two interact, he is picking on them. Why? Because Jesus wants them to kill him. Do you guys understand this? Jesus has an objective, and the objective is to rile up this political party so they use their power and their influence to murder Jesus. And it's ironic because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't agree on a lot of things, but you know what they did agree on? Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is a threat to our power. We must collaborate to end his life, conspire to kill him, murder him, and cover it up so that we don't lose control over the crowds and so that we don't have our power threatened by Rome, seeing the Jewish people rise up and threaten their Roman peace. This is a big deal. So Jesus in John 6, he's going to teach, and you're just going to see this. You're going to see Pharisaical, Jewish theology all throughout it. And then some of his doctrine, you're going to hear it, and you're going to go, ooh, I don't know what I think of that. This happens all the time. It happens to me, and I have to make a decision after I ask a question, and here's the question I have to ask regularly when I think critically about Jesus' teaching. Do Jesus and I agree on fill in the blank? So as a Christian, what is more important? What I believe about an issue or what Jesus believes about an issue? We're going to go Jesus every time. And so as a follower of Christ, 
here's what I have personally committed to despite what it costs me or whether or not it makes sense to me. I've committed to have the mind of Christ, to find every thought he has and to take it as my own as long as it's in context. I have the desire to take Jesus's doctrine as my rabbi, as my teacher, as my savior, as my God, as my master, and to take even his interesting little nuances. I'm like, oh, I don't think about that, right? But if it's simple and clear, I want to take that and I want it to be my doctrine. Does that make sense? And this is, this is the nature of a rabbi and his disciple. The disciple committed to three things with their rabbi. They committed to having their head, their doctrine, their beliefs, their heart, their passion. So if you had a rabbi who was passionate about, I don't know, uh, uh, Phoenician children, then you would be passionate about that. You make some, whatever they were passionate about. And so your job was to take everything they believe and make it your belief. Everything they were passionate about, their heart, and make it your heart. And even the way they lived, it actually got kind of weird in, in, in first century Judaism because if they had a certain way they taught, you taught that way. If they had a certain way they talked, you talked that way. Your job was to imitate every single aspect of them. So as we just hear Jesus teach, right? Here's what I want us to commit to. Is it simple? Is it clear? Is it understandable? And do Jesus and I agree? By the way, this is a great exercise every time you read Jesus because, again, as an American Westerner, does he even care about American Western values as he's teaching the Jewish people? The answer is, it's not even in his brain. My job is just to suspend some of that and, and observe and study my Savior. So here's how we'll do this. There's two separate teachings in John 6 that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to go kind of quick, and these teachings are going to contradict each other. And what's frustrating, Jesus doesn't resolve the contradiction. The authors of the Gospels don't resolve the contradiction. The authors of the New Testament don't resolve the contradiction. It doesn't even seem to be an emotional issue for them. For me, I'd like to have all my contradictions resolved. Amen? So some of you are going to leave this and you're going to be like, Michael just drove me absolutely crazy. I contend Jesus drove you crazy if I do my job well. All right, so here's the first teaching. And the first teaching isn't gonna feel controversial until you hear the second teaching. Then you're gonna be like, what? Okay, here's the first one. Each of us are responsible to believe in Jesus. Can we agree on that? If you're here and you have never personally trusted in Christ, it is your personal responsibility to trust in him as your God and your savior. And I want to show you this and watch this theme unfold in John 6. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up. Otherwise, I'll have it on the screen so you can follow along. Then they, the crowd, said to him, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? By the way, age-old question, right? Biggest lie in all of human history and every single religion other than what is taught simply in the Bible. Good people go to heaven. Total worthless idea. And this is their thought. What good works do we need to do? In order to go to heaven, and Jesus answers them and says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And here's what you see, very simply. For Jesus, in verse 29, salvation is not about the accrual of good work. It is about actually personally taking responsibility and trusting in Jesus Christ as your God and Savior. We go to verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Aren't you really grateful so far that Jesus does not say, here are the works, be a good person, give 10% to the church, be really, really, really nice to your neighbors, be a great father, make sure all your children are believers and obedient. 
You need to be a great mother. You need to never conflict with your husband. And you just, you need to be a pretty wonderful human being. Aren't you so glad, by the way, that the Bible doesn't say, oh, child, you want to go to heaven? Obey your father and mother. And if you're good enough, then we'll let you in. Are you not glad that that is not the standard by which salvation happens? Amen? And Jesus is making it very, very clear. Your, your idea that salvation is by the accrual of good works, it needs to die because salvation is through trusting, through belief in Jesus Christ. And, and the word is thick. It doesn't just mean I'm going to mentally ascend to a truth. It is actually a heart condition. It's, it's this moment. Think about when a husband and wife, they're about to get married. Do you? I do. There is an act of heart trust where you are entrusting your life and your name to another person. It is powerful. It is a big, important moment. This is not, I acknowledge that you are my husband legally from this point forward. It is not that. It is, I am giving my heart to you, my life to you. I am giving you the ability in marriage to ruin me or to bring me great joy. It's that level of commitment. And so to believe is to actually trust God personally. But Jesus goes on, he says in verse 40, this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now are you seeing the pharisaical teaching, and I don't mean that in a bad way, about resurrection, about eternal life, that this life isn't all there is. You're seeing this kind of creep through in Jesus' teaching here. But everyone, anyone who looks on the Son and believes shall have eternal life. We go down to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal eternal life. Let's just pull back and let's look at all of these verses at once. Do you see a theme? And the answer, of course, is yes. Believe, 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 believe. All throughout the book of John, you are going to see this word over a hundred times because Jesus has to dismantle this terrible notion that everybody has believed that salvation is by the accrual of good works. So it is impossible to listen to Jesus's teaching and come to the following conclusion. I am not responsible to personally believe in Jesus. You cannot come to that conclusion. Every person is personally, fully responsible to trust in Christ. But let me say this backwards. Every single person in hell is responsible for disbelieving in Jesus. So this becomes important. If, if there was a trial, by the way, this is hypothetical and there's nothing in scripture that ever says this will happen, so this won't happen. Hypothetically, if you were in hell and you could appeal, if you were to appeal and present all the evidence of why you were unjustly put in hell, there would be no jury that would let you out and put you in heaven. Not a single one. There will never be ever a human being in hell who could make or bring out some sort of information that would prove that Jesus, who has already established himself as the judge who determines whether or not each person goes to heaven or hell, now we know based on whether they believed in him or not, there is not one piece of evidence in all of human history for any single person that they could raise up where Jesus could be proven unjust. Every single person who ends up in hell is there rightly Justly, because they did not believe in Jesus Christ. Human responsibility is an incredibly high value for Jesus and for God. They're the same, and all of the scriptures inspired by God. Paul says in Romans 1, talking about those who don't believe, 
They are all without excuse. Well, that's hard, right? But that's, that's real. So, but I think this is not controversial. We look at most Orthodox Christians, they're gonna say, you are responsible to believe. If you don't believe, you are responsible and there is no one who is unjustly sent to hell or greed. Now let's get to the actual more challenging part. Jesus' second teaching in John 6, no one who goes to heaven chose it. You guys are going to have great lunch discussions, by the way. It's going to be a blast. So this is basic Pharisaic theology. No one is going to be bothered by what Jesus says about how someone goes to heaven. Nobody. Oh, now in this room there will be for sure. Yeah. But in the first century, that wasn't of debate amongst the Pharisees and those who held the Pharisaical theology. That was understood. There's actually going to be a different part that is profoundly offensive, and I'm going to show that to you. But I want you to see this. Jesus says in John 6, 36, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. And let's establish, are the Pharisees individually responsible for believing in Jesus Christ? Yes. Then Jesus says, next sentence, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, don't worry, there's a bunch of these. Like, Jesus is unrelenting on this subject in chapter 6. So I want you to notice first his doctrine. First his doctrine is that every single person that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. Do you see this? They will believe. And yet, there are those who don't come to the Son. They don't believe. And here's, here's what's so offensive right now if you're a Pharisee. What's offensive is not what's offensive to us. You mean God chose some and not others? What is offensive is that they believed because they were born Jewish, they studied the law, they were good people, at least they thought they were, that they were in. And Jesus is saying to them, you pride yourself in being chosen, but you're not. And do you know how I know you're not chosen? Because you haven't believed in me. Because if you were chosen, you'd believe in me. Do you see this, how this is offensive? The offense part is not the choosing for them. That's what's offensive to Americans. The offensive part was that Jesus is telling them, the Father didn't choose you. And they are furious. They don't want to kill him because of his doctrine on predestination. They want to kill him because he is publicly telling them that they are going to hell and they're not part of the chosen people of God. Look at verse 39. Jesus is, again, unrelenting on this issue. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You're watching the pharisaical teaching here. He's affirming their general doctrine and worldview and how they interpret scripture. And here's what he's saying. Of the people chosen by God, not only will they believe, but Jesus will never, ever lose a single one. Now, whatever you believe on, on predestination, election, have at it, I love you. You're gonna go to heaven either way if you believe in Jesus. You don't have to agree on that to be a Christian, right? Amen on this? People are all over the page on it. I have a view on it, of course. I, I think it's Jesus's view. Let's debate. We'll have a lot of fun. Great. I do wanna say this. Most people at Village Church are going to affirm something. They're going to affirm you cannot lose your salvation. 
okay, so you can't unchoose, but you can choose. Why does your free will mean nothing after you trust in Christ, but it means everything before? But for Jesus, this isn't even his notion. This is, that's an American way of thinking. If I'm sitting down with Jesus, here's his way of thinking. The father chooses, gives them to the son. The evidence is they believe, and the son never loses one. Because for the Pharisees, free will wasn't the value. The value was God's choosing. Now, again, this should drive you nuts. Because, Michael, you just said every person is responsible. I agree. The two contradict. Anybody with me here? Anybody be like, I'm seriously annoyed. Don't get annoyed with me. I'm just trying to like highlight what Jesus is saying here, okay? That's all I'm trying to do. But here's what I do love. Here's what Jesus is affirming. Anybody who believes, by the way, you believe because the Father chose you. But if you believe, I will lose not a single one of you. If you believe, I will preserve you and protect you. You will never lose your salvation, ever. It is the most secure thing Period. It's interesting because even in this debate, Americans, we get like all like uh, confused and frustrated because we love when we lose our free will and not losing our salvation. But we hate when someone, God takes away our free will and choosing salvation. You can't have it both ways. If you want the free will to choose him, then you got to have the free will to unchoose him. You get it? And here's what Jesus, Jesus doesn't even care about free will. That's not even his value. But what Jesus is trying to communicate is you're responsible but if you, if you did believe, it's because he chose you. And if he chooses you, praise God. You, by your ridiculous behavior, or you're struggling to comprehend things, like you, you actually you can't unchoose him. You're stuck, which I think is great news, personally. Well, Jesus isn't done. I mean, this is just going on and on and on. Verse 43. Jesus answered them, don't grumble amongst yourselves. Again, they're, they're not upset because of his teaching on predestination. They're upset because he's implying that some of these Jews, these Pharisees, aren't chosen, even though they're Jewish. Then he says this. You guys ready? This is going to get nuts. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the resurrection language? Again, Pharisaical teaching. No one can come to me Unless the Father, who sent me, draws him. Draws is a funny word. Because almost every time it's used in the New Testament, it is not meant to gently woo at all. It, it can, at times, move in that direction. But the vastly predominant way it's used, well, let me just, let me just show you. It's used for people who are dragged to prison, it is used for people who are forced into court against their will. It's, being, it's used for fish being taken out of the water. It is used for swords being taken out of their sheaths, getting ready, intent for battle. It's used uh, to describe Paul being taken by a crowd to be beaten. Uh, what I want to show you is I want to show you kind of the general way the word is used. So, Again, this is, Jesus speaks it in Aramaic, it's translated into Greek, and now we get it in English, right? But there's, there's a lot here. And, and this word is actually a really significant word. Because Jesus, is, again, this idea for them, that's not controversial. It's controversial for Americans. Nobody is hearing Jesus' theology on the Father choosing and then realizing that people are generally in their natural state resistant to Jesus, 
And that the father kind of has to say, listen, you don't even know what's best for you, so we're gonna just go this direction. And every single parent, right, who has to discipline their children, they also understand that the heart of their child doesn't always know what's best for them. And then sometimes they have to drag them into something that's not the best, only for them to go, oh, that was better. Thank you very much for that. You did what was best for me despite my rebellion, right? Parents know this intuitively. Again, this isn't the controversy, although it is, I think, for us. And here's, here's what Jesus' general doctrine of salvation is affirming, which, by the way, is basic pharisaical teaching. That the human heart in sin doesn't jump right away to believe in Jesus naturally. That, that, that sin has really corrupted us, and it has made us run from God naturally and not run to God naturally. So that, that if there is a running to God you need to know that that's not your natural state. Something spiritually has happened behind the scenes that has revolutionized you or changed you. Um, we go now to verse 63. Uh, here's what Jesus says, building on all of this. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So he's affirming something, and he's reiterating something. He's affirming that if you're saved, if you believe in the Son, something spiritual has happened inside of you. The Spirit has birthed life inside of you. But he is hearkening back to something John already said in John chapter 1. I'll put it on the screen. I want to read this to you. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, they're making the choice, they're responsible, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born. How did all of this happen? Not of blood. doesn't matter what family you were born into. doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. That's not, that's not relevant. Now, this is, this is where Americans get drove, driven nuts. Ready? Nor of the will of the flesh. Wait a minute. What about my will? Nor of the will of man. Wait a minute. You're telling me my will didn't... Per- but you told me I'm responsible. Conundrum. I get it. Paradox. Frustrating, right? Here's the tension. But of God. This is what's so frustrating when you pull back the curtain of your salvation and you look behind the scenes. What John wants you to know and what Jesus is affirming is that somehow, as Americans, we place this huge emphasis on free will, and yet this isn't the emphasis that Jesus and the authors of the New Testament place. Isn't that interesting? We're not done yet. (laughs) Jesus is unrelenting on both of these issues, human responsibility and God's choosing. Verse 65, and I think this is probably the best summary statement of them all, maybe even the most bold. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Again, we need to process choosing free will and human responsibility. Nobody listening to this is bothered by that. They're bothered that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're not a part of the elect, the predestined, the chosen, because if you were, you would have believed in me. Isn't it interesting how Jesus can teach and the debate and the way they receive him is so different than the dialogues we have as Americans 2,000 years later. Well, yeah, 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 Jesus, I know you're trying to make a point to the Pharisees, but I don't like your position on this. Well, they're not even debating that. Now, should we? Of course, absolutely. But I want you to see Jesus as a Pharisee, theologically, not politically, and his teaching. Now, I want to go to the so what part of this, and uh, I want to do a little bit of training with you, and I want to help you understand this. Number one, when studying the eternal mind and purposes of God, embrace, here's a word you've probably never heard before, antinomy. 
can we just agree that God is infinitely more complex and that probably one day when we get to heaven, he'll give us kind of the answer of some of these conundrums and we'll go, oh, why didn't you tell us sooner? And he's like, because I wanted you to trust me, <laughs> right? Antinomy is simple. It's two beliefs that are both true and contradictory. It's very frustrating. I hate antinomy as an American, as somebody who loves logic. I need everything to make sense. I need it to make sense logically, emotionally, practically. I need to be able to get up and teach in such a way that I can make sense of every teaching. And when it contradicts another teaching that is also true, I need to be able to make it make sense for you. And I cannot in any way, shape, or form. I really want to. I want to send you off with clarity. Even if you agree or disagree with me, I cannot do that. Because Jesus doesn't try to resolve it. The apostles don't try to resolve it. Drives me nuts. There have been a couple different ideas that theologians through the centuries have come up with. I say these things to you to kind of give you like a warning of there are ideas that are philosophical in nature and there are ideas that are explicitly biblical in nature, okay? So here's some philosophical ideas that people have tried to come up with to make sense of the tension. One of them is a notion called prevenient grace. This is the idea, there's a couple different versions of it, but when somebody hears the gospel, even though they have no natural ability to believe, God actually in the moment of hearing the gospel gives them the ability to make a free will decision in that moment. He kind of takes away some of the sinful nature part of them and allows them to make a free will decision. There's just zero biblical evidence of that in any way, shape, or form. It might be true. I just can't root the idea in Scripture. So maybe when I get to heaven, Jesus will say, oh, yeah, it was prevenient grace the whole time. And I'll go, oh, cool. I just can't root it in the Bible. That's a problem for me. Here's another one. This is the complete other um, spectrum. Determinism. And some people have come to the conclusion then that God determines everything all the time. We're all basically robots. Everything, every decision is made, chosen beforehand. Every person who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, and everything you do is chosen beforehand, and we're basically all robots. There are actually theologians who believe in determinism for what it's worth. And yet the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the phrase that we use around Village Church is that God allows, ordains, or permits all things. He does not ordain all things. There are some things that he allows to happen. Like, for example, you might go home and yell at your spouse or your children or your friends or your parents, and did God ordain that? No, you chose that, and you're responsible for it. Did he allow it? Yes. And then there are some things that God ordains. He ordains the days of our life. He ordains a whole bunch of other things. But there are some things that God permits. For example, when Satan came to God and said, let me basically torture Job, God permitted that. That was a special circumstance that was done for a larger reason. God allows, ordains, or permits all things. Here, here's a, another idea that um, I think is, it's, it feels good, um, but I can't actually root it in scripture, and it's this idea of foreknowledge, that the reason God chooses somebody is because he looks down the corridors of history and time, and he saw that they would choose him, so he chooses them because he saw that they would choose him, and I'm like, that's a vicious cycle. And the word foreknowledge is used, but foreknowledge is always Never about a decision, but about a person. So God foreknows people, and yes, he knows what decisions you'll make, but that's not how it's used in scripture. And so foreknowledge is a really common phrase. Unfortunately, the way foreknowledge is used in the Bible, it always refers to people that God intimately knew beforehand, not decisions they would make. Would I love foreknowledge to be true? Great, but it's, it's, a, it's illogical to me. I want to show you this in action, by the way. I want to show you antinomy uh, in, in action in the book of Acts. It's chapter 13. And I think this might be one of the most irritating verses in the entire Bible. You ready for it? 
And it's going to unpack kind of this whole notion that we've been getting at between each person is responsible and yet nobody goes to heaven chosen. Here we go. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, that's the gospel, right? They're hearing about Jesus for the first time in salvation. And it says, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Awesome. Wonderful. They're hearing the gospel. They're believing. And are they responsible to believe? Yeah, absolutely. And the ones who denied it. And if they go to hell, are they responsible for that? 100%. And then here's what he says. And as many as we're appointed to eternal life, believed. Anybody else irritated? No resolution, no explanation, and here's the tension. I want you to notice the tension is not human free will and God's sovereignty. That's not the tension. The tension is human responsibility and election predestination and God choosing. That's the tension. And there is, email, there is no resolution whatsoever. Somebody was probably texting you and be like, yeah, he's a moron, right? That's fine. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if that was actually true? Um, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I remember when uh, my mother called me, I was at Michigan State, and she said, you're not going to believe what they're teaching. And, and I was so mad because I processed it as an American. I processed it with values of free will and determinism and pull up yourself by your bootstraps. And these are all my just inherent values. And I took them and I put them on scripture. And then I went on a two-year just like binge of trying to understand this issue, which is why, like, if, if you're not on the same page as me, sometimes these things take years to come to grips with. I get it. And that's fine. And you can even disagree. I love you. I'm so happy you're here again. But I remember hearing this and I was furious and I had all these questions well, that's not fair. And, I'm, and I just dug and I dug and I dug. And all I could get to is this twofold thing after years of studying this. There's probably no singular issue. I spent more time on just trying to make work. People are responsible. I am responsible. And yet, when I stand before the Lord, I will not say 99% you, 1% me. I will look at the Lord and say, this was all of you. My salvation began before the foundations of the world you foreknew me personally Jesus says, I know this is like the craziest of all the things Jesus says. You didn't choose me, I chose you. That singular statement drove me up a wall and it was when I read that that I had to come to grips with, do Jesus and I agree? But I'm not saying I'm a robot. I'm also not saying that I didn't choose in a fashion and in a way because I did and I'm responsible for that. But something happened behind the scenes that my natural self never would have done that. And I think if you're in a position here where you've personally trusted in God, count it all of grace because whatever brought you to that point, whatever got you to the point where your heart was soft enough, give God all the glory for that moment. And this is one of the reasons why in Paul's theology, he is obsessed with this idea. Let no man boast. There is nothing. Your salvation is, from, in Paul's brain, it is all of God. It is 100% of God, orchestrated by him, ordained by him. And if you could pull back the curtain and look behind the scenes to the process, you would see the dragging of God overcoming your resistant will. And at the same time, if you play that too far, you are fully responsible. How do the two work? Antinomy drives me nuts. Now, the second thing I want to do with you is I want to spend a few minutes on a different kind of training. And uh, this is something that I personally have to process every single time I teach the Bible. And I want you to identify the real reason you struggle with Jesus' teaching. And I don't mean this one simply. I mean any of them. 
And what I found is that when I come to the scriptures, every time I preach, I come with a whole bunch of influences that filter the way I see the Bible. And it stands between myself and the word of God and understanding it correctly. And there are six of them. And I want to walk through them with you. And here's what I want you to ask. As you read the Bible, are you influenced by things that are preventing you from, from seeing simple, truthful things that are right in front of your face? So, you ready? Six influences. We approach the scripture influence number one by our culture. We are Westerners. We have inherent intrinsic values. I've dabbled on this here a little bit. But do you know what one of the most important values for Westerners is? Free will. Now, I'm going to do a podcast this week. We're going to talk about free will, go a little bit deeper into that, what scripture says on that. That's not a biblical value. The will is a biblical value. Don't get me wrong. The will is. But what Americans mean by free will, that is a notion that many of us take and we put onto the scriptures and then we mandate it to obey our free will ideology. Here's another one. Gender and sexuality. As Americans, we have these notions, these ideas that are being forced into us. And you grow up and you marinate in this culture and so it is not uncommon that when people open up the scriptures, we've already predetermined what is good, right, and true. And when you predetermine by culture what's good, right, and true, you are not left with the possibility of seeing it for what it is. Uh, here's a, a practical example for a Roman Catholic. If you grow up in traditional Roman Catholicism, it is ingrained into your soul that salvation is sacramental and by the accrual of good works. That is in your bones. And so when you approach the scriptures with this cultural heartbeat, you're going to miss Jesus saying over and over and over and over and over again, believe, believe, not by works. You see that? Your culture, what you grew up in, where you live, forms you. And I could talk about this for generations, honestly. I just have so much to say on this, but I'm going to go on unless you will be here till 3 o'clock. Number two, we approach the scriptures influenced by our community. And I think people need to recognize that relationally, everybody is wired to want the approval of their people. But you are desperate for this, and so am I. And I have to recognize there are some positions I don't want to hold because I want you to like me. Or I want my church to like me. Or I want my friends to like me. Or I want my parents to like me. And it's interesting that this reality of our community and our people profoundly influences the way we interpret Scripture. Uh, to give you uh, an illustration of this, it is statistically like probable, like very probable. If you grew up Lutheran, do you know what you're going to end up being when you grow up? Lutheran, Presbyterian, Presbyterian, non-denominational, non-denominational. Why? Because to reject your roots feels impossible. And so some of you are here and you had to go through this whole process where maybe you grew up in a tradition that you really don't feel upholds the clearest approach to scripture. Was it not really emotionally challenging for you to move out of that into something else? For sure. And so we can't underestimate how often relationships in our community prevent us sometimes from seeing what's right there. Here, here's another one. I'm going to go in a little different direction here. Demonic ideas. And there, there are patterns of thinking that are ingrained into our soul via, you've heard me say this a million times, cultural mantras. These are one-liners that feel really good and they hug your soul and your brain, but they're wrong. And what cultural mantras are wired to do and they're demonically motivated is they are wired to get you to believe simple ideas and it stops all critical thinking. 
in our world right now to challenge a cultural mantra is one of the worst things you can possibly do. So here's a couple of them. And the abortion debate, my body, my choice. It doesn't even matter if it's logical. If you touch it, if you challenge it, names will be called. Because cultural mantras are wired to get you to stop thinking. They're wired to give you a hug, to make you feel good, and to enable things that don't glorify God. And so we have to challenge cultural mantras. We have to raise our children to understand what all these are. In the LGBTQ debate, love is love. Doesn't that just feel amazing? And I guess objectively, love is love. Michael is Michael. David is David. Iraq is Iraq. Yes. But the cultural mantra has meaning behind it. If you challenge that meaning, you're done. Well, it might be true. It might not be true. But cultural mantras are wired to stop all critical thinking. And what I don't want to be is somebody who stops critically thinking at the moment my cultural mantra is challenged. Because cultural mantras might be wrong, and very often we find they are. They are strategically implanted as propaganda in your brains to make us stop thinking. And as Christians, do we ever stop thinking? When I meet an idea that I don't like, do I just start calling you names? That is not what we do. We actually uphold all of our ideas to the best logic and ultimately to the word of God to make sure they're good, right, true, and glorifying to God. We approach scriptures, number four, influenced by our fallen flesh. Um, I have a hunch that in my resurrected brain, I'm going to be smarter. I'm going to have a whole bunch of abilities intellectually and mentally that I don't have right now, but there is just a fallenness. It takes us time to come to grips with things, and that is okay. That is okay. Understanding that the fallen flesh is slow to get some of the most simple things, and I have to deal with this all the time. Here's one that as a pastor I think is really just powerful. We are approached and influenced, we we approach scripture influenced by our pride. Any of you hate being wrong? Anybody in this room ever taken a stand against something Jesus clearly taught and then you have to admit that you were wrong? It's excruciating. I have to stand up. For 20 years I've been teaching and there are times I have to go back and say, I got that one wrong. I overplayed my card on that one. I didn't think hard enough about it. I actually, it was my pride coming into play. Now here's the deal. Because I don't want to be wrong on some things, it makes me not want to actually see what might honestly be right in front of my face. And that's a problem. Pride is a huge issue. And what I would tell everybody, I don't care how old you are, get really comfortable being wrong. Because we are all wrong all the time. Sometimes we stake our flag on things that we were wrong about. Amen? And finally, number six, we approach the scriptures influenced by our sinful desires. These are alive in each of us. And I am amazed that when we meet young couples who are having um, intimacy outside of marriage and their ability to justify it with scripture, the things that you really want, or they're dating a non-Christian, they know they shouldn't be, but they are, then they find ways to justify it in the Bible. We can find ways to justify our sin in scripture, can we not? It's very easy. So you have to understand, I approach the scriptures and I have all six of these working against me every single week. Every single day that I open up the Bible, these are all at play in one way or another and I need to be honest about those. And so as you struggle with Jesus' teaching, no matter what it is or where you find it, whether it's this one or a million others, I want you to just really ask yourself, are there things at play that are kind of holding me back? And so what I try to do is I try to be really patient with myself and with other people as we try to figure out what Jesus is actually teaching because there's a lot at work and to approach the scriptures as neutrally as we can, which feels impossible for all of us, myself included, it requires a level of humility to say, I am not Jesus. I can get things wrong. But here's what I want to make sure we all get right. It's my last so what. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. When I get up and teach, we teach on sometimes secondary and tertiary theological issues because they come up in scripture. But here's what I want all of us to understand. Salvation, whether you agree, whether you're wrestling through what Jesus is teaching or how I'm saying it or whatever else, if you believe that Jesus is your God and that he died on the cross for your sins, you shall be saved. You will have eternal life. And so I want to invite anybody here right now, if you have never even personally trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to trust in Christ for the first time. And his promise to you is that you'll be saved and forgiven and you will be raised up on the last day, imperishable in Christ's name. And if that's a decision that you want to make today, I just want to invite you, um, talk to the person who came with you, come talk to one of us up front afterwards. We'd love to pray with you and, and encourage you and help you take a next step because I'm telling you, even though sometimes Jesus is confusing, he's the author of life. He is the most genius teacher you've ever met because he is God in the flesh and he loves you and he's died for your sins. And I, I hope even in this crazy teaching on Jesus choosing and human responsibility that you can even see the genius teaching of our Savior and his love for you and what he went through. I mean, this guy had to navigate these people who wanted to kill him for three years so that he could go to the cross to bear your sins in your place. And so if that's a decision you want to make today, I want to encourage you to come talk to us. I love that we can talk to God anytime. Ask him to save us. Romans says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's my encouragement to you guys. I want to take a moment. I want to pray for you. And then I want to encourage you. If you've got questions on this, go to your community groups and do get out. And uh, we're going to be answering some questions I'll share with you at the end of the service at Vilshire's Digital. And we're going to go a little bit deeper into this. But you may not know this. We have about 30 or 40 questions alone on Vilshire's Digital about all the nuances of stuff. I invite you to go check them out. Debate, sit down. I love this stuff. For me, it's a blast. So don't hesitate to, to say, what about this? What about that? Um, I count it an absolute joy to think through Jesus' teaching as deeply as we possibly can. Sound good? Now let's pray together. Father, um, holy smokes, uh, you are a genius. You are beyond what we can comprehend. And as aggravating it is, as it is, we embrace antinomy. <laughs> Two things can actually be true, and our feeble minds may not have the ability to even understand 1% of their nuance. So we look to Jesus' teaching. Would you form us and give us his mind? Would you also give us the heart of Christ? We want to love the things you love. And would you teach us to submit our lives to the word of God, the teaching of Jesus? Lord, as we now approach communion, we are so grateful <clears throat> for salvation that is found only through belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Lord, the fact that we even have the Holy Spirit that allows us to process and think through issues like this, thank you. We love you and we celebrate you and we remember what you have done for us in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as we said, they had one thing in line together. That is, they wanted to murder Jesus. And thankfully, the Lord ordained and allowed the execution of Jesus because when they thought they were successful, they actually ended up failing miserably and purchasing for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our salvation. So we're going to celebrate communion. It's an opportunity to remember and savor what God has done for us. If you're new with us and you're visiting, uh, here's our simple rules. If you have personally trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to partake of communion with us. If you've not personally trusted in Jesus yet, um, we ask that you not do that. Nobody will like, look at you weird. But to partake of communion is to make that personal proclamation that you have made a personal decision to trust in Jesus. Uh, there are elements that are over to my left on that column, also over to my right at that column and between the double doors. We're gonna have a time of silence 
and then we're going to sing together. You are welcome to get up and get elements if you haven't yet in the time of silence or the song. And if you'd hold on to them until the end of the song, we're going to partake together. And that partaking together is representative of our unity that is in Jesus Christ. Let's have a time of silence together.